Hey everyone, it's Ben Wilson here, Vasculitis Visionaries podcast co-host, and we're bringing you a special episode today. My co-host Kaylee Bynes is off on a little camping, hiking adventure with her husband Peter. We're all kind of in a post-VF pajama party, I guess, vacation mode. I hope all of you had a great 4th of July holiday. hope all of you are staying safe and healthy. And of course, speaking of our recent pajama party, I want to thank all of you for your support listening both to this podcast and in our pajama party efforts. Incredibly proud to, along with Kaylee as co-host and the rest of our VF leadership team, being able to raise over $30,000. We actually raised $34,500 at the first ever virtual fundraiser we put on a couple weekends ago, the VF Pajama Party. So thank you to all who participated in that. And now that we're getting into, I guess, that second half of summer, we'll be ramping up our podcast series once again. We have a bunch of great guests lined up for really starting in a couple of weeks and continuing through the month of July into August and then into the fall. I know with a lot of the new subscribers, though, we've had some episodes that maybe you've missed so far. We've put together eight episodes to this point. Two of them have had two different parts. So there have been 10 different podcast episodes altogether, and we've had some incredible content, different guests from throughout the vasculitis community, a lot of researchers talking about a lot of different things, but a lot of really interesting new developments within our community that if you've missed out on, we'd certainly encourage you to go back, subscribe, and listen to all of those episodes in full. But what we wanted to do today is bring you just a compilation for some of the individual things that we found were incredibly beneficial for the entire community and really got a lot of good feedback on these individual particulars from our individual episodes. So we'll bring you some of these. We, again, had eight different episodes. We're doing sort of a best of podcast for this first I wouldn't really call it season. It was kind of like our first partial season of the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast. I know I've had a ton of fun doing it so far with Kaylee Bynes, my co-host. She's been an incredible uh, resource to have. I'm just the you know the broadcaster here trying to make things go smoothly. Uh, but Kaylee has been awesome. Our guests have been awesome. And uh, we hope we can continue to bring you a lot of exciting guests and content going forward. So what we're going to do is start off with some of our best of segments, all of these episodes We'll start with the director, executive director of the Vasculitis Foundation in Joyce Coleman. And she gives us just some overall basics, some ideas about this podcast as a whole, why we're doing it in the first place. And some of the uh, recent uh, guidelines coming out with the ACR, and we're going to have a guest or two coming on in the future to talk about these now that they are just about completed. We had Joyce on kind of in the run-up to those. So she'll talk about that as well. This is, again, just a little snippet from each episode. We'll start off with one of our first episodes, speaking with VF Executive Director Joyce Coleman. Um, I also wanted to kind of follow up on your ideas about the vision moving forward for the Vasculitis Foundation and kind of talk about this podcast in particular. I know that you talked a little bit uh, just in meetings that we've had previously about why you feel that this is an important podcast initiative and, and what you really hope to have VF uh, and physicians get out of it. So I'd love to hear more about that perspective. So I feel like people learn in so many different ways and we connect in so many different ways. And I think people listen to podcasts. They enjoy 
they enjoy podcasts. And so I think of this as just one more way to connect with our community, with our physicians, our researchers. I think patients will enjoy these podcasts, um, but it's just one more communication tool. Um, so I think um, we are going to invite some of our we have some really nice, smart, funny people, and I would love for for our community to get to know them. I read something today about rheumatologists. So the average rheumatologist in 2030, they figure there'll be less than 3,500 rheumatologists in the country. Wow, so, that's amazing. Yeah, so if you think about, and that's because um, for a long time, people didn't go into the field or, and now we have a huge number of rheumatologists who are going to be retiring. So when I look at that and I think about patients and access to care, and most of us have a rheumatologist on our team, you know, they're the core, usually they're the quarterback on the team, um, you know, kind of guiding the other specialists. So I think we have to think about what is that impact about, so if a patient can't get into a rheumatologist for three or four or five months, who's going to take care of that patient? And, you know, we are, we are teaming up with the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology, to develop treatment guidelines for the different forms of vasculitis. And so when we think about disseminating out the guidelines, which have never been done before, this is the first time we're developing these, you know, so we'll be we'll be sending them out to the rheumatology community, but we also have to think, how do we get this information out to the GPs, to the pulmonologists, the nephrologists, the dermatologists, you know, the cardiologists? Right. Many of our patients see many different forms of vasculitis. And so how do we get that information so that if you can't get into a rheumatologist, maybe your pulmonologist will say, hey, you know what? These are the treatment guidelines. We're going to go with this. To working with the vasculitis experts, you know, the, as you call them, the rock stars. But there's a huge, you know, probably 75% of the rheumatology community are not vasculitis experts. You know, they may see lupus, they may see arthritis, you know, so vasculitis is not, they may see one or two patients with it. So I think that the guidelines will help them be better physicians at treating vasculitis. That's great. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, Kaylee, you can go ahead. Sure. Um, so I just had a kind of a follow up about the the use of the guidelines, and I wondered if Joyce, they talked at all about collaboration between these doctors with different specialties and different backgrounds in vasculitis or experience in vasculitis. Because so I know that was something that I struggled with a lot. Um, when I first got diagnosed is I had these great doctors who didn't really agree on how to treat my vasculitis. And, you know, who do you listen to when there are two doctors? One is a kidney specialist and I had renal involvement and another is a rheumatologist who obviously specializes in vasculitis. And, and I was wondering if the guidelines and those conversations that you had, these nine hour long, you know, sessions, if you touched on that at all. So the guidelines, these guidelines have been developed specifically for the rheumatology community. Mm -hmm. But the VF, we want to take these guidelines to the pulmonologists, to the nephrologists, and say to them, okay, this is what the rheumatology field is looking at. What do we need to develop for these other fields, for the kidney, for taking care of the kidneys, taking care of the lungs, taking care of the skin, you know, the, the patients with talk who have 
arteries, you know, you know, what do we need to do? Who should we be working with else? So I kind of look at it as a, like kind of a two or three phase project. You know, how do we get it out to the rheumatology community? And then how do we connect with the specialists? Um, you know, it's tremendous information. And so many of the physicians, I think we can share it with the specialists and they will all benefit from it. And I also think from the patient side, patients will be, um, you know, educate themselves about possibilities. Because I'm sure when you were first trying to figure out, you know, which doctor do I listen to, the more knowledge you have, the better off, you're a much better patient when you, when you have knowledge. All right, our next little clip is from Dr. Peter Grayson, so far our most listened to podcast to date. So again, if you have not subscribed to our podcast, go ahead and do that. Go back and listen to a very informative episode we had with Dr. Peter Grayson, who works at the NIH, talked a lot about that with us, and I think most importantly about a huge announcement into new research that the VF and its partnering organizations are going into right now, in particular, relapsing polychondritis, which is a really important thing in that next wave of vasculitis research. So uh, Dr. Grayson, we had him on kind of as a special episode in the build-up to our pajama party, since he was, he and his whole family was uh, a great contributor to that. Uh, but we had a great conversation with him. Here's a little clip from that episode with Dr. Peter Grayson. Uh, one of the institutes where I work is called the National Institute of Arthritis and Musculoskeletal and Skin Diseases, and we're kind of known for studying autoimmune diseases. And um, so it's a very unique uh, place. It's uh, where I work is a, a place called the Clinical Center, and it's the largest research hospital in the world. And patients just can't come in off the street. There's no emergency room. You have to be invited in under a study protocol. But once a patient is in there, it feels like a normal hospital. There's an intensive care unit. There's radiology department. There's outpatient clinics. There's inpatient hospital wards. But it's set up uh, to function um, by providing clinical care and at the same time conducting research. It is uh, a place where a lot of important medical discoveries have happened over the last several decades. Um, and I came there about, I don't know, eight years or so to start a vasculitis program. Uh, and there wasn't one uh, in existence when I arrived. There had previously been a program that was started in the early 1970s. I know you talked about this a little bit, I guess, when Dr. Quinn was on your podcast, but that program was started by Anthony Fauci, um, who everybody, I guess, knows now. Um, <laughs> and he... Um, uh, he started it uh, when he was a fellow, um, and they were credited with like being one of the first groups that gave cyclophosphamide to patients with GPA, or as it was known then, Wegner's. Um, and they ran this program for several decades until 2005 when it kind of shut down. Um, and so when I arrived around, I guess, 2012, 2013, uh, I was really excited to revive vasculitis research at the clinical center. Uh, one of the first things I did was I sent an email to Dr. Fauci, uh, completely unsure whether he would even respond. And he responded like within an hour or two and told me to come meet him. And I came down there and he regaled me with these stories of the early days of vasculitis research in the United States and told me about why they chose to use cyclophosphamide and how they picked the dose and 
all of these like really amazing pieces of history. He asked me if people still remember him in the vasculitis community. And I said, Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and, uh, he actually wrote, uh, gave me a book, signed a book and gave it to me, which is something that I really cherish. Um, and just to kind of give you a sense of what kind of person he is, uh, he asked me to send him our research papers. Uh, and so from time to time, whenever we have a, what I think is a good paper, I will send it to him and he will email me back and comment on it. And I think you mentioned offline that you have a new research program that you're developing. So I would love it if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and when I came to the NIH, I thought I was going to focus primarily on ANCA-associated vasculitis, and we did a lot of that. And what we initially intended to do was to identify factors that would predict relapse. But this was around the time that rituximab really started to be used, uh, not just to induce a patient into remission, but to as a remission maintenance agent. And consequently, patients that were getting a lot of rituximab were doing quite well, and the relapse rates were very low, to the point where it was hard to study an event that never occurred. So we started to pivot a little bit and uh, match what resources we had to diseases and particularly types of vasculitis where there was unmet need. And so we spent a lot of time over the last uh, couple years doing a lot of research in large vessel vasculitis, primarily Takayasu's arteritis, but also giant cell arteritis. And then over the last two, three years, we started a new research initiative in this disease relapsing polychondritis, which is an extremely rare disease that has almost been forgotten in, in terms of research and, and clinical care advancement. Um, and the reason why we started to get interested in relapsing polychondritis is probably twofold. One is there is a physician who did her fellowship at NIAMS and her name is Marcella Parada. And she's kind of made it her life's mission to study relapsing polychondritis. Uh, and um, she convinced me to uh, join forces with her and to mentor her. And so together, we decided to build this relapsing polychondritis program. One of the I pride myself on knowing the pronunciations of all these as, you know, a broadcaster, obviously. And now I've got to learn. Another one, clearly. So I'll, I'll just work on that in silence while, uh, Kaylee, while you continue. <laughs> Relapsing polychondritis. I'll, I think I can. You, get... you can just stick to the letters, you know. R -P okay. Yeah. Keep it. <laughs> I don't want to cheat, but yeah, that, that'll work. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm about to stick to the letters. But for RP, so is NIAMS focusing on more of the treatment related research? And if so, is it. You know, are there partnerships outside of NIAMS that you're considering in terms of what people are researching for drug development, other things like that? Or is it more looking at markers? Uh, what kind of research for RP uh, is so really how we started this? We started an observational cohort, which allows us to bring patients in at any point in disease. And we generally see these patients prospectively at six-month intervals. And over years, we've seen over 100 patients with relapsing polychondritis. So ours is the largest prospective cohort of RP in the world. And we, we help provide clinical care for them, but we have not launched any treatment trials yet. We're really kind of trying to understand the clinical aspects of the disease samples and trying to study the disease a bit in the lab. And we are, you know, applying standard of care principles and trying out different drugs to try to get a sense of uh, if any medications are effective. Um, we actually 
form this international working group that is comprised of people that are interested in this disease. And we have people from Japan and India and Europe and around the United States. And we've really started to get together to do things like develop and validate classification criteria, to develop and validate disease activity indices. All of these measures that you need that are prerequisites to doing trials or clinical trials in the disease, but where you give treatments. So all of that stuff is in the works. There is a organization called the Relax. Um, I can tell you that this is going to be the year of RP uh, because we have this really awesome discovery that I can't quite share all of the details with, but we have figured out what causes disease in about 8% of these patients. And it's the same mechanism that actually can cause vasculitis in patients with polyarteritis nodosa and in GCA. Uh, and we're hopefully going to unveil this uh, at the American College of Rheumatology annual meeting, uh, hopefully this this November. But uh, I think that this is going to be an extremely exciting year for relapsing polychondritis research. And we've been working hard for the last two or three years to get to this point. And uh, I'm really, really excited to try to be an ambassador for that disease and increase awareness for that disease. Certainly exciting developments to be on the lookout for. I know I'm excited to kind of track how uh, that all develops now over the next coming months and uh, years. So thanks again to Dr. Grayson for all of his efforts and his help with the VF. We had another really interesting episode. We actually had a couple episodes so far in our first batch with pairs. Uh, this was actually a husband and wife duo. Uh, we kind of called this like an early diagnosis love story, so to speak. These was a married couple, uh, both working in the medical field, Nancy and Mark Anderson. And they kind of worked together finding a diagnosis for Nancy's symptoms when she ended up being diagnosed uh, with vasculitis. So it's just a unique perspective to hear about doctors kind of within their own family being able to figure out diagnoses and, and how they have used that experience now to try and give back to the community as a whole, what they're doing to try and, and push forward our, our whole idea of early diagnosis, figuring out uh, signs of that early and, and trying to help uh, just overall. So Nancy and Mark Anderson, I really enjoyed this episode. We had a lot of fun with it. And here's a snippet from that conversation. I wanted to start with that and just get your guys, your perspective and thoughts just from that part of the journey and, and how everything worked, where you start to feel bad, Nancy, and and Mark, you're trying to figure things out as, as a husband and also an, in, an internist and, and a little bit of experience in the medical field as well. And trying to sift through all those unknowns that come with just vasculitis uh, in general. So I'm curious how that all started for you guys and just the path that uh, you've been on. Mm -hmm. um, for me, uh, originally, I started with pain in my feet and numbness and some tingling and some swelling in my mostly my toes and under my under my feet bilaterally um, and started with with uh, podiatrists and orthopedic surgeons uh, and that went on for probably I think close to maybe eight months to a year and eventually and woke up one day from literally one day to the next with bilateral severe pain in my wrists, uh, starting more in one wrist than the other, but still significant in both wrists. And it got worse by the day from there. 
see more, more orthopedic surgeons, neurologists. I had two EMGs. I had every type of blood work drawn, uh, which essentially came back uh, negative. And uh, I saw a vascular surgeon. I think I saw approximately 12 to 14 physicians before it was all said and done. And what happened was I started to feel nerve pain in my chest um, and my abdomen. And it was getting more and more severe and really terrifying. And eventually my husband uh, was able to do all the research and asked a, a a neurologist to please draw the specific labs, one of which included the ANCA titers, which came back positive. And then from there, we went to Boston at Mass General, where we both had been working years ago and have connections. And we were able to see a rheumatologist there and then eventually a neurologist. And I was treated with, um, with um, Rituximab. Rituximab. Uh, learned, I've learned to understand my body a little bit better and know that I do get a little bit of waxing and waning, but it's been, it's been a learning process to understand the disease and, and, and its manifestations. And I'm still in the learning process phase because it's only been a short period of time since I was diagnosed. Wow. I think that's a story that a lot of the patients, as Ben and I have mentioned in previous episodes, are fairly familiar with is just really waiting for that diagnosis and seeing all these professionals. You said 12 to 14, which to me is mind boggling. I think I only saw five and I thought that was a lot. Um, and something that I'm kind of curious about uh, is what your opinion on um, the type of physicians you see and how that could dictate your diagnosis. And, and Dr. Anderson, feel free to jump in here as well. Sure. Well, I think, you know, initially when with her, like a lot of vasculitis patients, I imagine you have a certain symptom and so you're driven to a physician that you think would be the best person to deal with it. Like we went to a podiatrist because of her feet. They thought it was, they gave it a diagnosis of metatarsalgia, maybe, um, you know, some sort of, um, you know, just a, a focal neuropathy. And they were, you know, going to excise the nerves. There wasn't a, a sense that this was something more general. Systemic, yeah. yeah systemic. I think it was really hard for people to make that <clears throat> jump that this was actually a systemic illness. EMG, did the basic labs to rule out lupus, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, went to the rheumatologist when it became involved in her hands. She had the MRIs, she had EMGs, nothing showed up. And basically, because there was no specific, um, you know, heralding symptom that, that, that triggered something in them, even the rheumatologist, um, we were just told, you know, we don't know what it is. Uh, we'll have to see how it plays out. Wait till your nerve, you know, your nerve conductions and your EMGs change. You know, in other words, when you have more damage. Uh, I mean, obviously, everybody's going to see their 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 doctor, uh, you know, gatekeeper doctors. But what my point is, once you've seen several and you're still not getting the answers that you need, <clears throat> um, yeah, then you're going to have to to go to a place that that might be more knowledgeable about things that are less common. You know, and from a medical perspective, 
I don't really know, on a, you know, other than changing drastically medical education, but somehow the, the diagnosis, diagnosis of vasculitis has to be triggered in the minds of these clinicians. And at least in Nancy's case, with all the physicians that she saw, once we had the diagnosis, I contacted each one of them um, and let them know this is what her diagnosis was. This is out of the box. Please think of this next time. At least there was a positive, there was a feedback. Otherwise, they just go on their day and they would have never known that they actually missed a diagnosis that was unusual. But maybe, maybe they'll file that in there. And these are pretty, you know, I, these were handpicked physicians that we saw. Maybe in their memory bank now it'll be it'll be triggered. Maybe that'll come up. So As I said earlier, we've had a few different episodes, and two in particular with pairs of medical professionals. We've obviously had several episodes with multiple guests, but this one, I just, I kind of felt uh, game-changing as far as how I think about health overall, and we spoke with doctors Julie McGregor and William Pendergraft about the holistic standpoint of health. We had a kind of a two-part episode. They would be joined by Brandon Hudgens later, but this is just the, the conversation we had with those two doctors specifically, and they're both experts in autoimmune disease and vasculitis, but they've really looked into some specific treatment plans holistically that have really gone beyond that clinical measure of disease activity and, and looking at patients' understanding of their own health. So I, I think it's an episode that if you're a, a patient or a medical professional and you haven't really thought about the holistic standpoint, it's, it's worth a listen for sure, and this is a small a segment from that conversation. Because I specifically as a patient have focused a lot on my clinical measures, you know, where are my anchotiters at, like, you know, do I have proteinuria, anything like that. Uh, and I think it's just really fascinating to hear both of you talk about this holistic view of medicine, particularly for autoimmune patients like vasculitis patients. Uh, so before we kind of delve into that deeper, if you don't mind just giving a little bit of background to our listeners about complementary, alternative, integrative medicine, what those terms really mean, what you're looking at, and how that's really affecting patient treatment beyond this pharmaceutical clinical uh, laboratory type based treatment that we might be more familiar with. Yeah, so integrative medicine is a term that's used where people have conventional medicine in addition to um, alternative medicine or Eastern medicine or mind-body medicine. So that term of integrating, you know, bringing the best of all the different potential modalities into that person's um, healing plan. Complementary medicine um, was meant to be encompassing the non-conventional medicine. So. Chinese medicine or um, mind-body medicine or something that was used as a complement to conventional medicine. So very similar to integrative medicine, but integrative really is trying to say we're using all of it together. Uh, complementary is more of a term of everything except for conventional medicine. And alternative means that a person is using the complementary medicine only without doing conventional medicine. And those terms are sort of loose and gray and um, people may use them um, differently or interchangeably, but that's roughly um, 
alternative is sort of saying instead of um, conventional medicine. And um, I think basically, at least from my perspective, the idea is trying to say how does a human feel well? And like you're saying, it's not just about the labs and it's not just about the data. It's about um, making sure that a person feels um, energy, has good sleep, is breathing the air and enjoying being in nature, um, feels grounded, feels stable, and that is part of wellness. So it's trying to use all the different um, pathways that are available in our great planet that we know about to help somebody find real wellness. And there's not um, a one-size-fits-all approach in terms of management, you know, um, Grams and grams of curcumin is not going to fix this disease, nor is grams and grams of steroid. And um, there's a very fine balance between um, combining these different approaches to uh, minimize side effects, but also promote, you know, what we're all going for, which is very long-term, durable remission off as much immunosuppression as possible. When you look at it from then that whole team standpoint where you're working with other people to, to help uh, deal with individual patients, have you have you seen people that this is the new newer wave or even uh, older people practicing that that maybe hadn't thought about this? Have you seen kind of a, a, a coming around, so to speak, of a lot of this new stuff? And, and do you see that continuing or has it still been a challenge at times just kind of getting everybody on the same page? Um, I would say that more and more uh, providers are open to um, mind-body medicine, to nutrition, you know, using food as medicine. Um, I think maybe even herbs. Um, I think there are some components of alternative medicine that still are um, really unknown. Like I would say homeopathy seems to be something that conventional medicine providers just don't really understand or know much about in, you know, it can be extremely effective, but that is one that maybe conventional medicine providers are not as open to. Um, but there's a lot that is being researched with Chinese medicine, a lot being researched with meditation and breath work and um, yoga and Qigong and all these things and how it affects um, in a reproducible way in research. Um, outcomes with respect to uh, dementia, cardiovascular disease, musculoskeletal disease, autoimmune disease. So I think definitely we are going into a new world where more of this uh, integrative approach is um, going to be the wave of the future. I really think that um, for conventional medicine providers, although they may not know much about it, more and more people are becoming open to this for their patients and for themselves. And uh, so I think we have a lot to learn, um, but that people are more and more willing to engage in that learning process. Uh, Dr. Rennie Ree was a great guest we had on one of our first episodes and she gave us a really in-depth look talking about the microbiome. I was mentioning earlier in one of our clips with Dr. Peter Grayson, some of the 
ongoing research we've seen, and it is it's so important. We've talked a lot about recent research and a lot of the, the groundbreaking things that have been discovered. And the thing is, that's all still ongoing. And Dr. Ree is a good example of that, looking at the microbiome and, and the connection and the role that the microbiome has in vasculitis, something that I had never really heard about or thought of. It's, it's very, very in-depth stuff, but it gives you a really good idea just about how this, this new type of research is a big impact in how we look at vasculitis as a whole. So this was part of our chat with Dr. Rennie Ree. I think that's what kind of makes the transition and going into the like the whole microbiome discussion kind of interesting, Kaylee. And I know it's why you wanted to, to bring on Dr. Ree as well, right? Definitely. Um, and I touched on this a little bit in the introduction, but I'm just really fascinated by how cutting edge microbiome work is. Uh, so I guess before we dive into that, Dr. Ree, do you mind giving just a brief explanation of the microbiome and why it interests you? Yeah, so um, the microbiome refers to this vast community of microorganisms, such as bacteria, fungi, and viruses that live in or on the human body. And um, they have been with us since the beginning of time. They've co-evolved with the human body. And um, it's quite amazing. I mean, they're microscopic, obviously. We can't see them. Um, but I, the analogy I like to think of, and I mentioned this in my talk at the um, symposium too, is like you think of the planet Earth, and if you were to stand far, you know, stand on the moon and look at Earth, all you would see is blue and green and think it's just blue and green. But obviously when you come closer and you're here, you realize there is this very intricate ecosystem of so many different species and different organisms that are closely intertwined and affecting, um, uh, affecting the world. So in the same way, there's a huge ecosystem that is living on our bodies that we don't even realize on a day-to-day -day basis and we can't see but it is um, really shaping our health and our function. And um, there is uh, substantial data, and it's, it's pretty much fact, um, that this microbiome on our body is an important part of um, healthy function. So, you know, they do studies in mice, and if they've been able to create germ-free mice, mice without bacteria and other uh, microbiome essentially are not able to develop normally. Uh, a lot of people have also, a lot of scientists have also been interested in studying this in autoimmunity because we also know that the microbiome is essential to a health, the healthy development of our immune system. And uh, so there's been a lot of work primarily in inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune disease that causes inflammation in your gastrointestinal tract. And there, you know, there's, this has really been the pioneer in terms of autoimmune diseases. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, evidence that suggests that alterations in the gut microbiome can predispose to this disease. But there's other diseases, too, that there has been a lot of interest, um, primarily rheumatoid arthritis. There's been findings of certain types of bacteria in the oral cavity and in the lungs that uh, are uh, seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And there's been studies demonstrating how these bacteria can lead to certain, um, uh, certain autoantibodies and inflammation that can lead to rheumatoid arthritis. 
there are researchers studying the microbiome, primarily gut microbiome and spondyloarthritis and lupus. And, uh, and we know in vasculitis that infections do cause some forms of vasculitis. And, you know, the prime examples are hepatitis B virus and polyarteritis nodosa, hepatitis C virus in cryoglobulinemic vasculitis, and streptococcus in IgA vasculitis. And so in these cases, we know that if we treat those viruses, those microbes, the the bacteria, um, then those vasculitides will, will resolve. All right, really great stuff to have these segments from all of our different podcast guests so far. We really are just starting this uh, this journey, I, I guess you could say, with the Vasculitis Visionaries podcast, trying to uh, get as many people as we can who've had some sort of impact as far as research and, and that ongoing study into vasculitis. We will have a ton of great guests coming up once we uh, get into the next couple weeks, starting on July 24th. We'll resume our every two-week publishing period. Kaylee will be back from her vacation joining me, and we have guests like Dr. Mike Putnam, who will talk with us about the ACR guidelines that have been a massive project. They've been something, a project that's been worked on for over a year now, so he'll join us to talk about that. Dr. Eric Madison from the Mayo Clinic will join us as well. Again, if you haven't subscribed yet, we hope uh, this is your, your opportunity to do that and go back, listen. If you've liked some of these segments from individual podcasts, certainly go back, listen to these full episodes as well. We're really just getting started uh, on this podcast series as a whole, Vasculitis Visionaries. Of course, as always, want to thank our presenting sponsors, Genentech and GSK, and we look forward to bringing you more podcasts down the line. We'll be speaking with you again on the 24th of July, so get ready for that. Again, I'm Ben. Kaylee will be back with me on that next episode here on the Vasculitis Visionaries Podcast.